Good to see you all again. I uh, listened to the lesson uh, from Neil, thought, uh, learned so much from his teaching, appreciated that, but there was one comment that drew a lot of laughter, and I couldn't hear the comment, but maybe, Brian, it had something to do with wives and Solomon, and yeah, it could be that was what it was. <laughs> I was figuring it was something along those lines. Uh, I taught, I think, the third lesson of the year, and then I disappeared for a while. Uh, and I apologize about that, but my wife and I, if you know Lisa and I, we had a couple things going on in our family uh, that kind of distracted us. We have older children who live uh, in Charlotte, and um, we had a daughter who gave uh, birth to her second daughter, and uh, that grandchild of ours lived for 18 hours. Uh, and so we walked along that path and journey with our daughter and her husband and uh, their little girl, who's two, and so we journeyed through that. and as a family, mourned together, celebrated together, um, questioned together, all the things that go with something along those lines. Um, and then about three weeks later, it was uh, one in the morning, and my phone rang, and I have my phone on silent all the time, but somehow one of my kids made it so that when my kids call, it actually rings. Uh, and so I picked it up at one o'clock, and it was my daughter-in-law, uh, and she said, hey, can you come get the baby and the dog. And I said, what's going on? I, you know, as we all would be, I was disoriented. She goes, our house is on fire. And so I woke up my wife. Uh, we, got, we told our daughter, who still lives with us, who's a junior in high school, we had to go. They live about two miles from us, so we're racing to their house. Uh, we couldn't even get close to the house because there were so many fire trucks and news trucks and ambulances and police uh, presence. And so we just parked on Rama Road and kind of ran down uh, to their house. And as we're running, we could see kind of the flames above the other houses uh, in the trees as we're running up there. And so uh, we get up to the front of the house and there's our son and daughter in their pajamas, uh, our granddaughter who was about two months uh, at the time, uh, the dog was there and just watching a house burn. Uh, and as a dad, you know, they're 20, I should know this, maybe 26, 27, somewhere in that ballpark. But as a dad, there's not much to say. Um, and, you know, he, I could see the weight uh, on my son's shoulders as he was questioning how this happened. And, you know, long story short, they had a solo or they had a solo stove out back and um, they thought everything was out. It was after the two months of no rain. And they think maybe one spark got under the deck and smoldered there. There were some dry leaves there and that eventually... Uh, led to the fire. At 12.45-ish, uh, they, they checked the fire at 6.30, they checked it again at 8.30, went to bed, turned everything off. At 12.45, my son woke up, doesn't know why he woke up, uh, and he could see the orange glow out their bedroom window, and the fire was still uh, outside in the, in the backyard. So he got his wife, and they got out, and, and everyone, thank God, was safe and healthy, and um, but the next morning, I went to help kind of pick through the debris. I'm not sure where my slideshow went. Let me find that. There we go. And so this is kind of where the fire started. Um, and you can see the, this is kind of where that caves in, where those chairs are, is where the solo stove was. And so as they, as they got out of the house, he woke up, got them out of the house. That's when the alarm started going off because that's the first time the fire got into the house. Um, and so the next morning, we're going into what is their living room. 
kind of a, and what was, we're picking things, and you're trying to, I mean, there's no words, there's no playbook for how to handle this. Um, and so we're, we're working through the debris, and um, through his insurance company, there was a company that came that uh, they specialize in restoration. Uh, you know, flood damage, fire damage, tree falls on your house. This is one of the companies who comes and does that. And so she's there kind of helping us, hey, you shouldn't take this out, don't bother with this. Um, and so then one of the things that we found uh, as we went through this pile, and so it was right where that table is, if you could see a table there, is we found the Bible. And so we picked up the Bible and we took it out and we put it outside on the porch, the front porch. And the lady who, this is what she does for a living, uh, she walks up and, and she walks by me. I just put the Bible down and she walks by me. And all she says is every time. And she keeps walking. And I said, wait a minute. I said, what, you know, what do you mean? She goes, every time. I said, well, well, what do you mean by that? And she goes, every time I go to a house that there's a fire, the Bibles don't burn. And she says, this happens every time. And I said, are you serious? And she goes, yeah. And I said, wow, what a testimony of God's word. God's word endures. Um, and so in the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of a mess, in the midst of cleaning up, uh, what none of us would ever want to clean up, um, this just word of every time. And I've thought about that a lot over the last couple months because it's so true in our lives. Uh, and maybe we don't go through a material fire, but we go through all kinds of fires and trials. But the truth is, every time, God's word endures. Uh, and God's word is true. And God's word is true and endures forever. Uh, and so as we talk today about a time of Israel's history, uh, which is pretty messy, um, and uh, if you read the, the descriptions in the King's, uh, the King's account, uh, I was trying to think of what it was like. I mean, it's kind of like um, Godfather, maybe, Succession, Yellowstone, whatever show or movie you like, but basically, I mean, you just had, you have this kind of theme of the, the patriarch and then competition of who's going to replace the patriarch, and then the Warren families, and then people are getting killed left and right to take over, and it's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, but through all of this, God's word, God's promises to the people endures through the mess. Uh, and so that's what we want to talk about uh, as we go through our time uh, together. So as we remind ourselves of our casket, what does C stand for? Creation, and what did we learn about creation? A couple things as we went through that time. It was good. <laughs> what else? God rested. What else was within the creation before the fall? God dwells with man, and Neil talked about that, right? That theme all the way through the scriptures. What else was in the garden before the fall with creation? Two trees. Trees, yes. Two trees, yeah, two trees. Work. We had work. Work was good. I don't know how your day was, but work is good, right? That was a given. We have tasks to do, relationship with Adam and Eve. All this was good, and then we know that sin 
uh, created separation. Um, and then we will go through the stories. And then what does the A stand for? Abraham. Abraham. And what did we learn about Abraham and God's plan? His faith made, his, made him righteous. Transformation. The covenant. All peoples will be blessed through him. This concept of the promised land. Right? And so we go through the Abrahamic covenant. And then what is the S? Sinai. And what did we learn about that? Another covenant. Moses. I'm sorry? The golden calf. Yep. It's going to sound familiar as we read in Kings a little bit. Stiff-necked people. <laughs> yes. Stubborn people. Yeah. Ten Commandments. I'm sorry? God's uh, plan to dwell with the people in ta the tabernacle. We had Joshua, then we had Judges. What did we learn about Judges? If we had to map out Judges, what would it look like? All right, we got the circle. Right? A lot of us probably could think about our lives. We go through that own circle individually, but they were going through it collectively. Uh, and then we get to K, which is where we are currently. What does that stand for? Kings. Okay? And so last week, Neil talked about the tabernacle to the temple, uh, God's theme throughout the scriptures, starting with the garden, uh, all the way through about his plan to dwell uh, with us, and then E and T as we continue to work through exile and temple. Has anybody ever done walk through the Bible? It's way back in the day, uh, we did that in college. My wife and I remember we were dating. That was our dates on Wednesday nights. Uh, I know that's kind of questionable date strategy, but it was cheap. Uh, and so we would go to uh, Will Creek Church in Illinois, uh, and they one time came in and they had walked through the Bible, and so it was a way to learn the scriptures uh, and, and the major you know, events of scripture. And I still to this day can remember some of them, and one of the things I remember is about the three unified kings. Who are the three unified kings? Saul, David, Solomon. And the way they learned, anybody, anybody remember this from Walk Through the Bible? I saw a couple of your hands, how we remembered those and Walk Through the Bible. Okay, what they called it was no heart, whole heart, half heart. As they looked at these three kings, and it was a way to think about these three kings. Saul had no heart. Okay, David had a whole heart, man after God's own heart. And then Solomon had a half a heart. Why do you think the writers of Walk Through the Bible, why would they say Saul had no heart? Wasn't chosen by God. Too proud. He didn't worship God. Made some questionable decisions as a leader. Now, it's interesting. We, we know a lot about David. We know the good and the bad, but he's considered the man after God's own heart, forerunner for Christ, why would they say whole heart for David based on his leadership? He had a repentant heart. He had a repentant heart. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Gave all the glory to God. Gave all the glory to God. He was after God's own heart. That's good. 
What about Solomon? You heard learn about Solomon. Why would he have half a heart? <laughs> he was good for a while until he wasn't. Yep. I'm sorry? He gave his heart away. He needed a lot of hearts with the number of wives he had. Yes. Yeah. Compromised? Is that what you said? And concubines, yeah, add that too, yes. <laughs> Which is a compromise. We could put that together, right. <laughs> okay, so where we are now is this time period really, in many ways, if you look at, if you look at Abraham all the way through here, this, if you're looking at this strictly politically uh, or in ancient history, this is the high point of Israel, right? When you think about their wealth, their prominence, their success in battles. This is the peak of the, the nation uh, when you think about it in terms of strictly based on um, comparisons of countries. Now, the problem with this is how did they wind up with a king? They demanded a king, right? God's plan was not for them to have a king because he wanted to be their king, right? But they came and said, hey, we want a king. What was their reason for wanting a king? Everyone else has a king. I don't know about you, but as I parented, that was not usually the thing that pushed me over to the other side of a choice for my kids is when they came and said, hey, everybody else has it, right? But that's literally what the Israelites did. They said, hey, all the other nations have a king. We want to be like them. Can we have a king? And then God warned them what would happen if they had a king. What were the warnings that God specifically gave them? Yeah, conscription of your sons and daughters, whether it's for military or building projects. All right, so he's going to take your children. What? I'm sorry? He's going to take the best of your crops, taxes. Anything else? So we go through this time period of where they asked for a king, God gave them a king. We had some ups and downs, and now things are about to fall apart uh, because there's division in the kingdom. And so after Solomon, there was not clarity of who is going to lead and who's going to rule. And so as we think about this time period, as our author has called it, rebellion in the kingdom, uh, what I wanted to say is our bottom line, uh, and we think about the Bible in the, fire, in the fire, God's word in his way endures and the repeated disobedience of the people led to exile. God's word in his way will endure, and the repeated disobedience of the people led to exile. So the story doesn't end well of this chapter. And God warned them, and what God told them was going to happen is what happens, and we wind up in exile. But that's literally the story of human nature in many ways, right? That's the story of sin. God warns us, tells us what's going to happen if we do it. We do it, and we wind up in exile, separation. And it takes something or someone, more importantly, to bring us back, right? So really the whole gospel story, the whole story of the Bible is encapsulated in this part of the scriptures, which is always the case. That's the meta-narrative uh, as we've talked about.
So to give you the lay of the land after Solomon, there were two people vying for the throne. Does anybody remember their names? And of course, just like the scripture to make it real easy, they rhyme for us. Yeah, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? And you got these two. Which one was Solomon's son? Yeah, Rehoboam is one of his sons. Jeroboam, who was he? Yeah, he was a gentleman who rose through the ranks and became an important, and one of his jobs was to oversee the, all the, the young men and women who were conscripted. And he was over building projects. Uh, and he, so he's helping build the kingdom. And so as Solomon passes away, these two gentlemen come together to vie for the kingdom. And at one point, Jeroboam was trying to challenge Solomon because he thought that he was doing too much building projects, too much conscription, and he actually fled to Egypt. Again, another theme, a reoccurring theme in the scriptures of fleeing to Egypt. We've seen this multiple times. We think about uh, Joseph, or I'm sorry, yeah, Joseph, and we think about um, Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt eventually. And so you see this theme, and so Jeroboam flees uh, as he tried to lead a rebellion that didn't go well. Rehoboam comes in, and he's about to be the king, and he goes for advice. And he goes to two different groups of people to get advice. Does anybody remember this part of the story? And he goes to the, the wiser leaders, the older men, and what was their advice? Back off. <laughs> Lower the taxes, back off the conscription, let's slow this all down, give the people some space. And then he goes to the younger, his, his contemporaries, his buddies, and says, what do you guys think? And what did they say? Be harsher. Stick it to them, basically, is what they said. And so then he steps back and he looks at these two pieces of advice and he ignores the older, wiser advice and he goes with the younger advice. Again, a lot of lessons we can apply there in our own stories, right? Do we have someone in that older, wiser that is advising us as we're making decisions? And so then he decides to really push down and double down on the conscription and the taxes and everything else. And then Jeroboam comes back and now they're going to vie uh, for the power and the kingdom splits. And so this is where the kingdom splits. And so the green from here on is going to be Israel, and that's 11 tribes of the 12. And that's going to be Jeroboam, and then Rehoboam is going to be in Judah, and one tribe in orange. Now Rehoboam has one major advantage. What does he have that Jeroboam doesn't have? Jerusalem, right? Where was God dwelling? Jerusalem. And so he had that event. I'm not saying it went much better for him, uh, but that was his event. Now, Jeroboam knows this, and so what does he decide to do? Because based on the Jewish law, what should the people be doing multiple times during the year? Sacrifice and going to Jerusalem, right? So he doesn't want his people to go back to Jerusalem because he's afraid of that, and maybe they would go or support. And so what does he decide to do in his part of the kingdom? Yeah, so he builds his idols or places to worship, and he was very strategic. If you can see on the map, he's got one down here in Bethel at the southernmost part, and he's got one up there in Dan at the northernmost part, and he says these are going to be, and so he put two places for them to worship. And so that was part of his strategy of how to keep his people, uh, but obviously uh, for 200 years, these places remained places of idol worship. Uh, and this is what will eventually tear the kingdom down. Um, and we go through this stretch 
with all the kinks. Uh, and so this chart just kind of gives you, because it gets confusing reading the scriptures. Now, if uh, the way it's traditionally laid out for most of our Bibles, if you're not reading a chronological Bible, because things are happening at the same time, but they're in different books, right? Because you got the prophets, you got the kings, chronicles, there's a lot going on. And so sometimes it gets confusing, but basically the kingdom divides. And on the left, you have the kingdom of Israel. That's the north. That's what we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, and they're going to go for about 220 years. And the Bible is very clear about good and bad kings. What's the phrase that the author of Kings uses to know if it's a good or bad king? Did evil in the eyes of the Lord or did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? So the, the, kind of you get this tip off every time, good king, bad king. The problem with the North is they had how many good kings? Zero. Right? The only good kings are in the South. And so it's very interesting. So they last 220 years, 19 kings, they were all bad, eventually destroyed and exiled by the Assyrians. And then that list below that, the prophets. There are four major prophets that really speak into this time period, and that would be Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Elijah, Elisha as well. Um, and then on the right, uh, which is next week's lesson, is all about Judah and their prophets, and they obviously last a little bit longer, 340 years. All right, so that is a good backdrop for us. Here's what I'd like to do at the tables for your first conversation is, this session is titled Rebellion in the Kingdom. What are several ways that the people disobeyed during this time? There's one real big obvious one, but I also want you to talk about some other things, looking back at the covenants specifically that the people disobeyed during this time. So have a conversation about that at your tables. All right, let's come on back. I want to correct something. I said 11 and 1 tribes because I read one commentary that said 11 tribes in the north, one in the south. Most are going to say 10 and 2 with Judah and Benjamin in the south. So I said 11 and 1 because the last commentary, which I had never heard before, thankfully our friends over here corrected me. So 10 and 2 uh, should be the count on the tribes. 10 in the north, 2 in the south. What are some of the ways that they disobeyed God? Idol worship is kind of the most obvious, right? They set up idol worship. So idol worship. Child sacrifice, that would be part of the idol worship, but yes. Neglected the poor. What else? Invalid priests. I'm, invalid priests. Invalid priests. Okay. Ignored the Levites for the most part. Put others in charge of worship. Someone else said something. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, still in the light of Christ and, and the chosen, right? It's just fascinating to think about how messy this gets. Yes, absolutely, but there's still hope for us, all right? That's God's promises enduring through the mess. What else? Yeah, they didn't push out all their enemies, so that's still, which then led to another part of the problem, which would be worship and bow, worship and bow yep. 
taken wives intermarriage. Okay, so they're going to married outside of the tribes, which they weren't supposed to do. Anything else? Materialism. Materialism. Being, being, having covetous? Is that what you said? Yeah. Jealousy, greed, unsanctioned war. <coughs> just having a king wasn't the plan, right? So you could start with that. Just having a king wasn't part of the plan. So you could go there. Um, and we're, a big one has to be that they were divided, right? This was never God's intent for them to be divided. God's plan was for his tribes to be together, united. Uh, under him as their king. And so even being divided is part of their disobedience uh, during this time. So God sees this and he says, okay, well, if they're not doing all the, they're doing all these things and all this disobedience, he decides to send people to them. Who's that? The prophets. And so another thing in their disobedience is they didn't listen to the prophets, right? In reality, God sends his, his spokespeople to come in and speak to them, and they ignored them. And, and these guys had some bizarre assignments when you think about it. I mean, Hosea, uh, his whole assignment, um, knowing he was going to marry an unfaithful wife, and that was going to be a model uh, for this. You know, you think about Jonah, and you think about Jeremiah, you think about all the prophets, but they ignored God's spokespeople during this time as well. And so you got a whole list there, uh, that we could talk about, but really the Bible points a lot to idol worship. And so this is uh, the remnants of this, one of those sanctuaries in Dan uh, that Jeroboam had set up. And again, it lasted for 200 years. Uh, and I think sometimes in our minds, it's hard for us to capture how long the time periods are in the Bible uh, and how long things last and how long things continue to go downhill. Uh, and the morass that they put themselves in, uh, we think in such short time periods, uh, and we think in a, everything's immediate for us. And so uh, that it lasted 200 years, and archaeologists recently um, were able to uncover some of this and see what Jeroboam had. But what he did, one man, what he set up, 200 years of idol worship. Um, it just speaks volumes about what one person can do as a leader, the burden of leadership, all that goes along with that. Okay, so if we know idol worship was so attractive to them, let's talk at our tables. Why was the idol worship attractive? Why would this be being people of the covenant, knowing God's word? Why would this be attractive? And why would they want to worship Baal uh, over God the creator? So talk about that a little bit at your tables. As you talk about this, let me give you a little... Pause one second because a question came from this table. You know, what about Baal? Why, why Baal? Baal gets used a lot through the scriptures. It actually is a name for multiple different gods. Uh, and so it's used by different uh, cultures and, and societies back then to, for different gods. For the Canaanite, Baal was a fertility god. Uh, and fertility god and agriculture god. So think about fertile rains, fertile people. It's kind of the way to think about it. But specifically the Canaanite god, that was about fertility, but there's other Baals throughout the ancient world that are worshipped as well. Uh, and so hopefully that gives you a little context about the Baal question. 
All right, let's come back together. What are some of the reasons that uh, idol worship was attractive or Baal worship? What are some of the reasons you talked about of why it would have been attractive to the people? Didn't tell them what to do. Bill didn't come with a lot of instructions. I would agree with that. What else? Okay, a lack of accountability. Absolutely. Popular. Yeah, everyone else is doing it. Same reason they chose a king, right? Transactional. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Being able to see it, touch it. That's right. Just put it away. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, it's a great one, right? If it's good enough for the leadership that's being modeled for me, it's good enough for me. Yeah. Again, the burden of leadership uh, takes on a whole new meaning on that one. Excellent. What else? Convenient, like it was geographically closer. Than yeah, absolutely. Jeroboam's plan, right? Let's, let's make this a little easier for you guys. We'll set up two. Closer to home, right? So the convenience of it, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I love the way you said it, Tom. Flexible truth, right? Boy, we could say that about our culture today, right? Right? We, we talk about this at our school. We, you know, we, we come from a biblical worldview. We believe there is absolute truth. And that absolute truth is found in God's word, right? But this type of religion is saying, hey, because Baal is not speaking, you could create his truth. And when you create his truth, it's your truth. And that's what we see all through our country, right? I'll, we'll make our own truth, and you have your truth, I'll have my truth, and we'll all get along just fine and dandy, and that's social media, right? Everyone getting along with everyone. That's a way to go away from the accountability, mm -hmm. yet maintaining the sense of being spiritual. Yeah. Because you're, you're outsourcing your own morality to a Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Say that again. Uh, to get away from the accountability, but, but uh, being spiritual is what you said. Spiritual. Yeah, you still feel spiritual, but you don't have the accountability. You kind of outsource it. Yeah, that's a great way of saying that. I like that. Yeah. Anything else? All right, so fast forward that to today. We have idol worship all part. I, I saw a Tim, Teller quote, Tim Keller quote yesterday, and I forgot to write it down. Uh, well, maybe I actually I did take a picture of it because it spoke to this perfectly. Tim Keller said this, idols are not only pervasive, they are powerful. Why do the Ten Commandments begin with a prohibition of idolatry? Because we never break the other commandments without breaking the first. That's, that's powerful to think about, Right? Idols are not only pervasive, which they are in our culture, they are powerful. Why do the Ten Commandments begin with prohibition of idolatry? Because to break the other nine, you start with number one, which is idolatry. So when you think about that in our culture, we're not worshiping Baal, but what are we 
what are the idols that we are worshiping? Materialism? I'm sorry? Career, education, entertainment, success, self, power, appearance. Anything else? I didn't hear it back there. Science. Science. Good. Technology. Political parties. Political parties. Yep. Uh-oh. <laughs> Careful. Anything else? Celebrities. Political parties who have celebrities. Anything that doesn't come from God. Yeah. Children? Yes, you can idolize things from God. That's right. Yeah. But when we think about the root of what they're going through, hopefully you see some parallels that we struggle with the same things. We look back and we go, ah, how can you... If you look at the old pictures of what Baal looked like and some of the statues, you're like, how, how can you guys worship that? Right? You guys are foolish, but... 100, 200 years from now, people looking at our culture going, how can you worship? Why do you care that Taylor Swift's at the Super Bowl? I don't know, right? I mean, that's just, but these are, right? I mean, they're going to say, these are the things that we care about. And they're like, what, why, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm going to trust you on that. Uh, but I think the, the, the theme that you, you put through there to see we're even going to talk a little bit about that with, this, with the story of Elijah uh, and seeing God. Moses seeing God. Not, well, not really, right? In, in their time in the Old Testament. Um, and, and, you know, not by sight, but by faith. Absolutely. So I love that thread that you put through there. So in the midst of this, God sends prophets. What was the role of the prophets? God's messengers. What else? To warn. Try to get him to turn around. Anything else? I put up here, speak on God's behalf, right? They're coming. They're God's spokesperson. I love this concept. They're the covenant watchdogs. Part of their job is to remind. Hey, don't forget. You know, again, much of this is oral tradition for them. They don't have the scriptures like we do, so reminding them about the Abrahamic covenant and the stories of God's faithfulness, reminding them about Moses and the Exodus and Mount Sinai. It's the reminding. So they're the covenant watchdogs trying to turn them back uh, to see what God had done uh, and what God would do, uh, to call out the idolatry and injustice that's throughout the land uh, and to challenge them and to repent and follow the law. And so we connect this, obviously, God's plan here was to go exactly against what we just talked about. All the stuff they were doing, he sends the, prophet to speak, the prophets to speak into. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, kind of the five main prophets to the northern tribes, to Israel during this time period that we're most familiar with, Elijah to Elisha, Jonah, Hosea, 
and Amos. And again, uh, if you've never read a chronological Bible, I would highly recommend that at some point as you study the scriptures in your only day reading because even you know, these prophets are not together in the scriptures, even though they're in this 200 time period and they're all speaking to the northern tribes and what's taking place. And so uh, if you've done that with the chronological Bible, it'll bring those together and you'll be able to see how it all uh, comes together with those uh, five prophets. I want to talk specifically about two of the prophets. Uh, and look to see what we can learn from their stories. F stories I'm sure you are very familiar with uh, in terms of the prophets. Um, I think one of my Old Testament heroes is Elijah. Uh, and the story of 1 Kings 18 uh, is the call of fire as he is battling the God or the priests of Baal, if you remember this story. Uh, so Elijah gets called. God says, you're going to be my spokesperson. He comes forward. He's speaking to the kings. Uh, and then he is being called. They're going to have a showdown. But what was going on in the country at the time? Because this is an important part of the story. Does anybody remember? There's a drought. Okay. And so then they're going to have, and they're going to go on. Anybody remember the mountain they went up? Mount Carmel. That was, I think I heard that. So they're going to go out Mount Carmel. And they're going to have this showdown. And if you remember the story, Elijah goes up to the mountain and this is 1 Kings 18. And then the priests of Baal come up on the mountain as well. And then they start to do all these things to try to get their God to call down fire. And they're dancing around, and then they're cutting themselves. And Elijah is, is kind of a character through this whole process, because he almost begins to taunt them. Uh, and he, he says things like, hey, maybe, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Let's wait till he gets back. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe your God, and, he, and he's kind of talking, he's just kind of sitting back and watching this whole thing. And there's all these priests and they're trying to bring the fire and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, all right, it's time for me to do it. And does anybody remember what he does to start the process? He pours water. He pours water on the altar. Now, why is that important? It's important for a couple of reasons. Obviously, he's making a demonstration of I'm going to soak out everything. But also, they're in a drought. Don't forget they're in a drought. And so that water is precious. Right? And so he goes up and he pours the water and then he says a prayer. And what happens? The fire comes. And then what happens? I'm sorry? I'm sorry? A hole in the ground. A hole in the ground. Yeah, before that part. What, what else happens? You're right. He takes out the priests, right? The Baal priests. He, he begins to take them all out. Hole in the ground swallows them. Rain cloud comes. And then he decides he's going to go down the mountains. Does anybody remember what part of this story? This is fascinating. He's, he's racing the king. It's King Ahab at the time. And he runs down the mountain and King Ahab is in a chariot. And who wins the race? Elijah goes down the mountain first. So, so you, you pause and you go, okay, let's, let's take all of this in context of what just happened in Elijah. I mean, you talk about best day ever for a prophet. Right? It doesn't get any better. This is like Hall of Fame stuff for a prophet. Right? He goes up on the mountain. These guys do all their things. He calls fire down from heaven. Fire comes. He wipes out the, pro the priest. Hole swallows him up. Rain starts to come. He runs down. He beats the chariot. It's an amazing story. Does anybody remember what happens right after that? Because it's fascinating. Ahab goes home. King Ahab goes to his house and he has a conversation Who's he have a conversation with? Jezebel. 
honey, you're not going to believe what happened today. And he, she tells, or he tells her the story. And what does she say? I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take him out. And what does Elijah do? He runs. It says Elijah is scared, depending on what translation you're using. But Elijah was afraid. Now, you're just going to step back and think about that. What he just did. Called down fire. Wiped out the priests. Rain. Beats the... One woman says, I'm going to take you out and he's afraid, and he goes to the desert, all right? And God meets him there. So I want you to hold that thought for Elijah, because the other one I want to think about is Jonah. We know the story of Jonah, but what I want us to think about is the end of the story, because we don't spend a lot of time usually in chapter four. Jonah's a short book, four chapters, the first three, so you know the story, Jonah is called to go where? Nineveh. Nineveh is where on our map? If we go back to the map of the tribes. North and not inside the circles, right? It's in Assyria, where the Assyrian kingdom is. It's going back towards Mesopotamia in that area. And so Jonah is called there and he doesn't want to go. Why didn't he want to go? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a fascinating, he, he took matters into his own hands too, right? Because he's like, hey, yeah, God, you do what you say you're going to do. Okay, that's good. I don't want you to do it, so I'm not going to go, right? That's his rationale. Again, we've probably done that in our own lives, but that's what he said. He didn't want to go there because the Assyrians were brutal people. In the ancient world, they were known as people of the hook. And one of the reasons they were known as people of the hook is because that's how they would move people. Right, Because part of their strategy, like a lot of the ancient civilizations, when they conquered you, they exiled you. They moved you around so you could not be united. And one of the ways they did it, the ancient uh, stories would tell us, is they put a hook in people and dragged them. And so the Assyrians were known. They were brutish people. They were known as this. And, and Jonah's like, I don't want to go there, especially by myself. Right? And so then we know the story, the big fish spit up. What happens? Jonah eventually goes to Nineveh. And what happens? Revival. Now, what's fascinating to think about that when we go through casket and we think about covenants, what's fascinating to think about this? Because it says they began to follow God. But it's outside of the covenants, right? Because it's not his people anymore. It's not the Jews. And so it's fascinating theologically to begin to consider that. We won't spend a lot of time on that. But he goes there and God does what he said he's going to do. And then Jonah leaves. And he goes and sits on the hillside. And what does Jonah say at this point? Just take me. I'm done. It says the exact same thing that Elijah said. Elijah said, I'm done. God, I don't want to do this anymore. And so here's what I would like you to do is go into 1 Kings 19. Hopefully you brought your scriptures or you got your phone, but read 1 Kings 19 by yourself in this story about Jonah. I mean, a story about Elijah. And then read Jonah 4. And then look for that as a table. What are the similarities to these two stories? And what does God provide in these moments to these two prophets? What does God provide in these moments to these two prophets? 
we're going to give you a, a good stretch here to read that and then talk about it as a table. All right, let's come back together. Two prophets separated by a pretty good time period within that 200-year stretch. What are, what are the similarities to the stories of the section that you read? Both wanted to die. Both wanted to die. I'm done. What else? <laughs> Long beards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So God speaking through creation, using creation to speak to both. Absolutely. What else? He pursued them both. They both said, I'm done. I want to die. Am I the only one? A lot of self-pity. It seems like they both put their will in the center instead of God's Yeah, putting my will or their will in the center. I said that he isolated both of them, like, but also gave them rest. Yeah. Yeah, they isolated. They were both isolated, and God gave them rest. Yeah. Yeah, their own initiative, but doing God's work. God, don't you see what I'm doing here? I'm doing your work. Where's my blessing, safety, security? Well, you know, throw in your word there, right? But there's an element of that, of look at me, I've done it. What else? Yeah, yeah. In sense of entitlement, Chris talks a lot about that transactional concept of our faith, right? I did this, give me that. There's a piece of that here. We can be mad at God. Both ways. Yeah, Elijah's thinking it's a, it's a done deal, right? This is hopeless. Right. Jonah just saw it happen, and he's still saying this is hopeless, right? Why are we doing this? Why are you doing this? But they're both losing perspective, right? Because think about what they've, they've both been through in the most recent part of their history in terms of the fire, calling down, everything that Elijah went. And then think about Jonah's story. And you're like, don't you guys see God working in your life? And this is where we wind up. Now, if you're like me, you can have the same thing happen. We're pretty quick often to forget what God's doing in our lives. And we forget to look back and be reminded and remember and think about that. And so most of us probably at some point have wound up in this situation where we're like, am I the only one? Why am I doing this? I'm done with this. I'm tired. But it's interesting what God provides. So part two, what does God provide to them in this time of isolation and need? His presence. Shelter. Encouragement. We heard rest earlier. Direction. One-on-one time. Food. Nourishment. Provides food. Hope. The Jonah story is a little odd, right? With the plant 
and then the worm coming in and eating the plant maybe provides a little compassion <laughs> for, for, for Jonah. Maybe a little empathy is what he's trying to teach here in terms of that. But I think that the big picture here is perspective. I think what God's trying to provide is perspective. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember what I've done. Remember what I will do. Right? And so many things. And one of, one of the things, I, don't, I can't remember if it's in chapter 19 or not, but one of the things I love about the Elijah story is, um, you know, he goes through all this, and what does God provide? He provides him rest, nourishment, a reminder, reminder of who God is. And then he gives him a friend, right? Elisha, right? Because as soon as Elijah leaves this place, he picks up Elisha as his friend, is kind of who he's going to mentor to be the next prophet. Um, and so in our own lives, in our own worlds, God meets us where we are. I heard several of you say that as I was walking around. God met them where they were. We all go through this, and God will meet us, and he will provide rest, nourishment, a reminder, a friend, perspective. The things that he provided for them, he will provide for us as well. Any other thoughts or comments on the parallel of these two stories? Because to me, it's fascinating to think about they're both in this time period of the rebellion of the northern tribes through all this evil kings. The, the stories of these two men, pretty miraculous and fascinating, um, yet broken men that God's using for his work. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great perspective. It's really because men are stupid and wandering out there, right? And God has to go get them. And the women are where they're supposed to be in terms of doing the work that they're, you know, for the family. But great, great parallel is the woman at the well, right? Jesus meets the woman at the well, which, which is fascinating because that's, that is in this part of the story, right? In terms of Samaria and where the northern tribes were, this would be, in the, and then it's a scandal for him to do that. Um, but she was in the midst of doing what, the work for her family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hagar, yeah, that's great, yeah. Any other thoughts? Thank you for sharing that. We, Elijah, the story ends even more fascinating. What happens? Goes up in the chariot of fire, right? How many of us would like to go that way? <laughs> I either, Lord, I want to go in my sleep or I want to go with the chariot. Those are my two uh, desires. I, I don't know if I'm going to get either one, but I'll take either one. Right? So this fascinating story, he goes up in the chariot of fire, right? Who's the other one? There's two men that don't die, right? Uh, Enoch, right? Yeah. So, but then he reappears. Where do we run into Elijah again? The transfiguration, right? And so we read in Matthew 17, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his, uh, James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is good for that we are here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking with them. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they, lift, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Again, I just look at Elijah going, man, this guy got a lot of highlights of the Bible to him, right? And so this is a fascinating story. It's the inner circle, James, Peter, John, up the mountain, and then appears before them, Jesus, new form, Elijah and Moses. I've always wanted to know how Peter knew it was Elijah and Moses, right? Because we had no pictures, there's no family album, maybe a name tag. I don't know, but how did he know? But you wonder why did God pick Moses and Elijah? Anybody have thoughts on that? We were going to do that at the table, but due to time, we'll, but why Moses and Elijah? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Most commentaries would say exactly that, right? It's, it's Moses in the law. Uh, Elijah brings the messenger and Jesus is the two combined. And so this is why Moses and Elijah. Anybody have other thoughts on that? Yeah. Why not Isaiah? Yeah. I don't have that answer. I, I think it's a good question though. Yeah. That wasn't on my syllabus for tonight, so I cannot answer that question. <laughs> and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but that could be the case. Anybody got another thought? Yeah, culmination of their calls and law and profit, maybe some second thoughts in there. Yeah. There's one thing in common. I, I, I had never heard this. I read it just as I was preparing for this lesson. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that was the thing I read. I'd never heard that before, but I read that is when you think about the story of Moses going up and um, Elijah in the story with the, in the cleft and neither one saw the face of God, but they felt the presence of God. Uh, and so these were two unique experiences that they both have, but here they are with the face of Jesus, the face of God. Just heard that? but I thought it was pretty, I've always gone with the law and the messenger, but I thought that was a pretty interesting when you think of their two stories in the parallel of Moses and Elijah. So something to think about, um, but I thought it was a fascinating uh, thing to consider with uh, those two stories. We just have a few seconds left. What, so we look at this in this time period and it ends poorly, right? It ends in exile. Okay, the kings do evil, the prophets come, they ignore the prophets, and at the end of the day, the Assyrians come and they conquer them and they scatter them. And we're in exile. How do we pull this together in the one redemptive story? Well, I think it's the way we started, right? God's word endures through all things. But disobedience leads to exile. But Jesus doesn't leave us in exile, right? He comes to us. God comes to us and he provides rest and nourishment. Because in many ways, Elijah and Jonah modeled this. They were in exile, and God came to them in the midst of this part of the story. Uh, and so for me, this points to the bigger story. God's word, his promises, his covenants, they're true. They last through all the mess. Disobedience leads to exile as a nation and as an individual. 
But when we're in exile, God comes to us. Just like someone said earlier, God pursues us. And then when we're there, he provides a reminder, rest, nourishment, a friend. Our God's a good God, even in the middle of all the mess. And his word endures. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for these stories in that you gave them to us so we could learn more about you. Uh, But Lord, even as we read these, we learn more about ourselves. And so I know for myself, and I'm guessing everyone in this room, we struggle with idolatry in our lives. It may look different than the people of Israel back then, but Lord, we struggle with this. And so we ask that you help us be obedient and we look to you only. And Lord, we're grateful that when we are in exile, that you pursue us and you provide that rest and nourishment, the reminder of who you are and who we are. And you provide friends that we could study together. We could be your body here on earth. We're grateful for your son and for your love. We pray for a good night's rest and prepare us for what you have for us tomorrow. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great night.